my name is Stephen Bushong. I'm associate editor at Solar Power World. This is Solar Speaks. On the line today is Jeff Spees. He's senior director of policy at Quick Mount PV. He's also secretary at NABCEP, the North American Board of Certified Energy Practitioners. Thank you for being here today, Jeff. Good to be here, Stephen. Great. So today we're talking about the growing complexities of codes and standards in the rooftop solar mounting market and how companies can address the issue in a functional, pragmatic way. So I think it would be best to start with the basics, Jeff. Uh, Could you begin just by discussing what the overall challenges that the industry is facing? Well, I think the, the uh, one of the challenges that we don't talk to, talk about today is the uh, fact that uh, we've seen a dramatic increase in focus on the rules and regulations as they pertain to installing solar photovoltaic systems on roofs. In years past, there wasn't a tremendous focus by building officials on what was code compliant or what was required and because the industry has grown so significantly we've seen many building officials in the solar active states take a great interest in how to validate that the PV systems being mounted on the roofs comply with building code, with fire code, and with electric code. Yeah, and before we get into those specific codes, I would like to ask about how this issue impacts our readership, solar installers and developers. Uh, It's been said that six or seven years ago, building departments didn't do much screening of project plans because they weren't too prevalent. But now, up to 50% of their job is permitting PV systems. How does this impact solar installers? Well, in in that uh, 50% number does apply to some building departments in the solar active states. I know that there are places in Hawaii and California where uh, certain cities and jurisdictions would see 50% or more of the permit applications for solar installation. Uh, Of course, in many other states, it's still a relatively small number, many jurisdictions around the country. But uh, for those jurisdictions that had seen that rapid growth in the number of permits being issued, as one might imagine, they started to pay attention to what the rules of the game were and should be and uh, what is considered code compliant. Heck, when I started working in the industry, most building departments uh, did not know really what a solar photovoltaic system was. And in many cases, in, in parts of the country, permits weren't required at all. And that's changed quickly. And the industry is really struggling to adapt to the fact that jurisdictions are asking questions such as what is the proper way to bound uh, to bond and ground uh, a PV racking system so that it's safe from electric shock or fire hazard. So what does this mean for the solar installers working? What it really means both for installers and building departments is they will need to learn more about what the code requirements are and how standards apply to those code requirements. So one of the areas that I've been very actively engaged in is developing the language for the UL 2703 standard, which is for rack-mounted PV systems. And this covers many significant elements of a PV system design. In fact, it crosses into all three areas of major code focus. It addresses uh, building code through mechanical loading requirements. It addresses the fire code through fire classification. And finally, it uh, has significant relevance to National Electric Code which does require that you use a uh, system that is bonded and grounded per an applicable listing, and that listing today is UL 2703. So uh, building departments and installers alike now need to spend time studying how you would construct a system on a roof 
so that it complies with those three major areas of code compliance, fire, building code, and electric code. So what kind of resources are there available to solar installers? Are there, uh, you know, advocacy organizations working to make sure these codes are easily understood and functional for both installers and AHJs, uh, as well as for the benefit of the whole industry? Well, there certainly are a number of sources where you could learn more. Unfortunately, because this is a rapidly evolving issue, the education that's available is also rapidly evolving. And sad to say that probably not as extensively available as it really needs to be. So currently, the best advice I can give to building officials or installers or manufacturers, for that matter, that want to better understand how the codes and standards function is going to some of the major trade shows. I'll be doing, for example, a training workshop at Solar Power International in in Las Vegas in uh, September, I believe it's this year, that will address this specific topic in a half-day workshop that will be available. Uh, there are other training venues available. I, on a monthly basis, with my role with QuickMount PV, provide information in a webinar that's a 90-minute webinar that is titled Roofing Codes and Standards. So we do address all of those elements that pertain to the roofing elements of solar installation. There's also a significant initiative underway in Southern California called the Solar Energy Action Committee, which originally was developed from within Los Angeles County, which is the largest building department in California, probably in the U.S. And uh, they have started a monthly series of meetings that's been going on for over a year now, where top building officials from throughout Southern California will meet with industry representatives both from the manufacturer and installer communities to discuss code standards, interpretations, permitting, inspections, and all of the elements that relate to getting the system installed properly, legally, with, uh, with authority uh, in Southern California. And of course, the work that's coming out of that group has significant impact on things like the evolution of the UL 2703 standard and its language. That Solar uh, Energy Action Committee sounds uh, really positive for people in Southern California. Is that the type of thing that should be uh, replicated throughout the country? It certainly would be nice to see that. I, I, I suspect as we see growth in other areas of the U.S. in solar, there will be initiatives like started in Los Angeles County with the Solar Energy Action Committee, or SEAC is the acronym that's used. Another important resource that I should point out, and I do serve as a uh, on the board of the California Solar Energy Industry Association, or CALSEA, as it's often called, but I serve as the, uh, the chairman for the Codes and Standards Committee, and we are working with our members to uh, make certain that they are properly informed of the codes and standards and there are a number of resources available throughout the website as well as uh, webinars that are done occasionally to highlight some of the important codes and standards work that's taking place. But realistically, we do need a greater level of dialogue between the different parties, between building officials, installers, and manufacturers. Historically, the, these entities have often been at odds with one another. And it's my experience that when you sit down and you talk with a building official when there's not a permit on the line, hmm. uh, that you can have productive conversations that lead to a better 
a, a better process over time. So I, I definitely encourage anybody listening to get engaged with their state solar energy industry association to start this dialogue and to encourage building departments that you're dealing with to to go to industry trade shows to uh, to communicate with installers in a manner that's disconnected from a specific permit. I feel that's a very important element. You can't easily have productive conversations on codes and standards when it's relating to a specific project. Uh, tensions are too high. But when you come to a neutral meeting location without a specific project on the line, you can start to have productive discussion. That's a great point, Jeff. And it sounds like you'd agree that it is sort of on the uh, local solar installer's shoulders to connect with their AHJs and permitting officials and make sure that they understand solar to a degree where they feel okay with permitting in the future. Agreed, but quite honestly, for an individual installer to attempt to do it on her own is challenging and most often not very productive. So what I would strongly endorse is uh, having installers approach their local state solar energy association and uh, try to address these issues as a group. When you have one-on-one -on -one communications, it doesn't have nearly the same mm -hmm. power as when you have a group of individuals with common interests having these discussions. As an example of that, there's been a new committee formed within the National Solar Energy Industry Association called the Mounting System Manufacturing Committee, or MISMAC is the uh, acronym that we've come up with, MSMC. And this is a organization of racking manufacturers, all competitors with one another, that are working cooperatively uh, through SIA to address codes and standards as an industry group rather than as individual companies and I think that everybody I've been engaged with in that initiative feels that it's much more productive for us to discuss these items with the relevant entities such as LA County as an industry group rather than as individual manufacturers. Our input has so much more significance and weight and credibility when done through organizations like the Mounting System Manufacturer Committee. I want to uh, get to that in just a second, but first I was hoping we could talk about some specific uh, code-related issues. Um, perhaps you could explain the challenge uh, with each one and how it could be resolved. Um, beginning with uh, electrical code, you mentioned that earlier, especially as it relates to uh, module-level electronics. Uh, what, what's happening in the electrical code right now that might be of interest to solar installers? Well, one recent development in the latest revisions to the National Electric Code that are going to hit here in 2017 and uh, go into effect in many states within uh, one to three years, depending on the adoption cycle. But there has been a, a new requirement in 690.12, which is the section of the National Electric Code, that addresses... Uh, 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 rapid shutdown. Uh, that's a term that many people in the industry are familiar with since it, it debuted three years ago when the 2014 National Electric Code came, to, came out. And what that essentially requires is that you need to have some type of a device, whether it be a m microinverter or a maximizer or even a string inverter that has a special box so that the system can be shut down it, it very quickly, de-energized. So, uh, a firefighter, in theory, would be able to go up on the roof without any risk of 
high voltage electronics to work around if they had to do any roof roof work in the event of a fire. Uh, more, uh, in the latest version of twenty of the uh, of the uh, National Electric Code six ninety point twelve, they've established a limit on the maximum voltage that is pushing people toward. Uh, module level electronics and uh, and some of the devices that would work with a conventional string inverter which is still less expensive than module level electronics uh, are, are they're falling behind in terms of uh, their ability to be used and and that's in essence driving up the cost of installed solar on the roof so that's one of the complexities that's come from the evolution of code and also electric code is uh, clear again that you must use a listed bonding and grounding system and, and uh, very recently uh, that there's been a change where in the past people would utilize UL467 for validating uh, listing of bonding and grounding devices and with the debut last year officially of UL2703 as an ANSI accredited standard, it now has required that building officials verify that the devices that are being used to bond and ground the system are listed by 2703. So those are some of the, I guess you would say, developments within the world of electric code that are being focused on by many solar installers, but they need to educate themselves more extensively because these are some complex issues that have some ramifications that go far beyond the technical. It enters into the business realm. When you, in essence, uh, uh, implement the 2017 electric code, it might mean that string inverters in much of the country won't be terribly practical unless we see more rapid shutdown devices that they can work with. As it relates to waterproofing code, that enters into the building code realm, the international building code and international residential code. And as much as I'd like to say there's clarity there, uh, the, the fact of the matter is for, uh, for most roof types, there's a significant lack of clarity as to what constitutes code compliant waterproofing. And it tends to be left to each and every jurisdiction to establish rules that they think are appropriate. Sadly, Few jurisdictions have much in-depth knowledge as it pertains to proper waterproofing practices, so things are less problematic than they were 10 years ago when the standard procedure was to just drill a hole and fill it with sealant and call it a day. <laughs> uh, there are more and more building officials recognizing the importance of flashings to protect those penetrations from waterproofing, but the building code language itself is not clear, and sadly, it puts the onus oftentimes on roofing manufacturers who also aren't clear in their guidelines. And then finally, fire codes. This is probably the area where we have the least amount of controversy in the solar active states, with a few exceptions. Uh, fire code requires that you have a PV system that is... Uh, rated from a fire classification standpoint to the same rating as the roof mandate for that area. So in Oakland, California, as an example, because of the Oakland firestorm 20 some odd years ago, there is a mandate that all PV systems must be class A fire rated as well as all roofs. Whereas in many other areas where fire danger is not as severe, uh, large urban areas that don't have forests or grasslands nearby, a class C fire rating, which isn't as good as a class A one might imagine, but a class C fire rating is all that's required. So uh, about a year and a half ago, 
it became mandatory to have this fire classification for a PV system. The state of California was the first place where this was really enforced in a broad basis and uh, because I feel of the good work for, on, uh, in many respects on the part of CalSEA to educate the solar installation community and building officials as to how fire classification works, we were able to adapt to it without tremendous difficulty. Now the fire setbacks, which is another contentious issue in the realm of fire code, which requires that your PV system be set back from the ridge of the roof by three feet and from the uh, from the rakes of the roof or the side edges by three feet for pathways. That's been tremendously problematic and has caused a lot of controversy because it has reduced the real estate on the roof that a solar installer can install PV on. Now, uh, the solar active states where this has been implemented, like California, have adapted to it. And there is a compromise in the works that might relax those setbacks to half of what they currently are, so from three feet down to 18 inches. Time will tell whether that will go through the latest revisions to the fire code, but uh, but again, I, I encourage installers to become educated on these areas because they are important to your business efficiency. Too many times we see installers putting systems on, not fully comprehending what the rules of the game are, and then getting uh, uh, failing their inspection and ending up in a oftentimes not so pleasant negotiation with a building official as to what they consider the proper way to do it. You want to have those discussions before the permit ever gets pulled, not after the system has been constructed. Sounds like there's a lot going on and it's always evolving. Uh, this uh, issue of fire codes, I know, helped give rise to the development of the Mounting Systems uh, Manufacturing Committee, uh, which, as you said, is uh, based within SIA. Uh, you're an active member in that committee. I was just hoping you could update us on the latest. Probably the first major project that our group has been focused on is the implementation of UL 2703, particularly in Southern California, where there, there has been tremendous focus and discussion. Los Angeles County had, oh gee whiz, eight, nine months back, put forth a list of about 22 requirements that they wanted to see for racking systems uh, that were used in LA County. And many of these requirements were uh, relating to the UL 2703 standards. Some of them went beyond what UL 2703 required and, and for that reason the Mounting System Manufacturing Committee chose to focus, focus its initial efforts on addressing this 22-point list which evolved to a 14-point list which is still under evolution. We, we have uh, some meetings scheduled toward the end of this month to further discuss that specific list of requirements that LA County has with the intention and hope that we can get uh, fairly rapid updates to the UL 2703 language that would satisfy LA County's off, uh, very legitimate concerns incidentally. So we're, we're really focused on UL 2703 but in fairness the Mounting System Manufacturers Committee has a broad range of codes and standards related issues that it must turn its attention to. There are changes to uh, ASCE 7 
10, or now it's going to be ASCE 716, which is the uh, American Society of Civil Engineers who establish wind load requirements that are utilized in the building code language. And uh, there were some proposals that would potentially increase the number of attachments on a roof dramatically with, without, in my opinion, uh, real justification. We're not seeing the safety concerns to precipitate this this move even though it's underway so what i would state as a very significant caution or a recommendation to solar companies is get involved because most of you ha are not involved and the fact of the matter is that codes and standards are being written without your involvement hmm. and sadly you won't like the results so what i hear is a lot of complaining about the impact of these codes and standards and my standard response is, where were you when all this was happening? Where was your company? Why are you not getting engaged in this conversation years before these codes and standards go into effect? You're very good at complaining about the impact of them, but you seem to have little concern about getting involved to help mold that language. So the number one piece of advice I can give to any solar company is have some level of engagement in this process. At the very minimum, support your state solar energy industry association who is often working both behind the scenes and in front of the scenes on helping these codes and standards evolve in a responsible way. But without your support, and, and it should also state that National SIA is also heavily engaged on those elements of national significance, such as the ASCE 716 language, these organizations need your support, deserve your support. So if you're not a member of SIA at the national level, and if you're not a member of your state SIA, in my opinion, if I hear you complain, I dismiss it immediately because you're complaining without taking any significant action to help improve the situation. So I would encourage everybody, uh, become members of SIA and your state SIA. It's one of the single best things you can do to help improve the language and codes and standards in future permitting and inspection processes. You know, Jeff, what's the requirement uh, for becoming a member of SIA or of, you know, a state solar energy organization? Paying member dues. It's very easy, other than the fact that you have to pay dues. And for those that might say, well, gee, it's really expensive. My question is, how many hours do you waste negotiating with building officials? How expensive is that? This is precisely what these organizations are focused on doing in addition to providing that advocacy and legislative lobbying uh, support that our industry is built on. So many people in the solar industry are disconnected with the fact that without this type of advocacy movement, our industry would not exist at all. Net metering was many years in the making battles that were fought by these advocacy organizations and all of the solar companies today listening to this podcast are benefactors of that work that was done oftentimes without them contributing financially to the process and if you so desire to continue that that's your prerogative but if again you're not members of SIA or your state solar energy association I have little tolerance for people that complain about problems when they opt to not support those organizations that are that are doing the heavy lifting to make this industry even exist. All right. Well, I think that's a strong note on which to uh, conclude the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Jeff, uh, for sharing all of this uh, great information with us today. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate the time. Jeff Spees is Senior Director of Policy at QuickMount PV. He is also Secretary at NABSET. My name is Stephen Bushong. I'm Associate Editor at Solar Power World. This was Solar Speaks. Thank you for listening. Thank you.